Pete Ripmaster has always considered himself an athlete, but it wasn't until much later in his life that he actually discovered running. When his mom passed away, Pete was in a really bad place personally, so he packed up everything he owned and knew and headed into the Alaska wilderness to find himself. After his soul-searching experience, Pete returned to the lower 48 and found himself in Telluride, Colorado. Soon after, he decided to make good on a promise to his mom to do great things and honored her legacy by running 50 marathons in 50 states and raising over $62,000 for cancer research in the process. This experience fueled his hunger to accomplish even more and served as a springboard for his cause-driven running journey. After having overcome numerous setbacks and challenges, five attempts, and a near-death experience, Pete became the 2018 champion of the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Now, you likely have heard of the Iditarod before, and it probably conjures up thoughts of a dog-drawn sled making its way through the Alaska wilderness in sub-zero temperatures. Keep that mental picture. But now, imagine a grueling 26-day, 1,000-mile self-supported foot race through the harsh winter conditions of the Alaska wilderness. And you now have the backdrop for his inspiring story of adventure, redemption, and a life well lived. In this episode, Pete shares his unbelievable story of persistence and change. While his mountaintop moments are worth celebrating, Pete is quick to tell you that lessons are learned in the valleys of this life too. Through his struggles with depression, Pete has become a passionate advocate for mental health and the practice of mindfulness. He believes everyone deserves the opportunity to live a life of hope. You're listening to Exploration Local, a podcast designed to explore and celebrate the people and places that make the Blue Ridge and Southern Appalachian Mountains special and unique. My name is Mike Andrus, the host of Exploration Local. Join us on our journey to explore these mountains and discover how they fuel a spirit of adventure. We encourage you to wander far, but explore local. Let's go. You are in for a real treat with this episode. When Pete and I began talking about having him on the podcast, he jumped at the opportunity, but he was really clear that he would only come on the show under one condition. He did not want this to be just about winning the ITI in 2018. While he is an accomplished athlete and ultra runner, those things don't define who Pete is or give him identity, and he wants you to know that. And they certainly don't tell his whole story. What you're about to hear is Pete's story on his terms. He wants you to hear about the peaks as well as the valleys. He wants you to hear about his failures that prepared him for all of his success. And he wants you to know that he has not lived a whitewashed life. He's battled insecurities, bullying, loneliness, and heartache. But through it all, he has never given up. With his internal drive, faith, and loving support of his wife and two girls, Pete has overcome the harshest realities life and nature could put in his path. And through it all, he has learned lessons that will carry him a lifetime. Let's join in on the conversation. Let's kind of go back a little bit. Let's talk about what got you into what you're doing now, mm -hmm. the money that you're raising for some great causes. Mm -hmm. And let's just hear a little bit about your story. We can go back as far as you like when you, you know, we, we've had conversations offline. So I, we, we, we're on the same page of where you are, where you right. want to go. But let's just kind of pick up where you feel comfortable picking up. And let's start the story there. I, I, I guess I have to say that I've always been an athlete. That's something that has never changed. I mean, since I've been a little boy till today, I've always gone through life as an athlete. I guess I will say that um, 
I, I learned uh, to, to deal with nerves through sports. I, de- I, de- I learned to deal with pressure mm. through sports. I learned to deal with failure through sports. Um, those are all big lessons that, that would come big for me later in life. But I learned those a lot with sports growing up. So I have to put that out there. Yeah. Anything with a ball, football, basketball, baseball, tennis, golf, lacrosse. Awesome. I mean, all of them. You know, I, I love sports and, and I will, I, you know, till the day I die. Yeah. So that's that's really a big thing for me. Um, the running the running and how that all came is a different story for sure. And I'll say that my mom was a big part of that. Um, my mom used to always love seeing younger people run. Okay. You know, just in general. You know, we'd be driving someplace and there'd be someone out running. And, you know, I think she was ahead of the curve realizing that running takes a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. It's not easy for anybody. You know, when you're lacing up those shoes and you're getting outside and you're trying to run miles um, there's a respect factor there. And my mom always had that. And I would always kind of catch on that. I wasn't a runner growing up, but I would always kind of always look for people and say, wow, that looks cool. And, 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 and that. And so, um, the, the story goes that, uh, my mom got real sick. Um, and about 1997 or 98, I got a call when I was at Kansas that mom had breast cancer. And, uh, I went home to be with her in Michigan. I grew up in Michigan. And I went home to be with her for around two and a half years while she struggled with cancer. And uh, I watched cancer just take her life away, um, quite literally. Mm -hmm. On November 22nd of 2000, I watched her take her last breath, and I held her hand as she passed away. Uh, That was the hardest thing I've ever been through in my life and probably will be, I hope. Um, But... That story goes that before she passed away and she was real sick and I knew she was dying, I had kind of a last talk with her. And I told her that I was going to do something big in her honor Mm -hmm. to raise money for breast cancer research. And of course, at the time, I was was not in a good place. I was not doing anything for other people. Mm. Um, And I was in a real bad spot because of how much I was hurting because of what I was seeing with her. And so after I lost her, I was even in in a worse spot. Um, But I had promised her at some point that I would do something in her honor. So it wasn't until much later when I lived in Asheville that I decided on a a whim that I was going to run a marathon uh, just out of the blue, no training, on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Wow. Wow. run 13.1 miles up a mountain, turn around and waddle back down the mountain and, and ran my first marathon on nothing but mental toughness. Wow. And I had not had a single training run before that run. So there was no cause associated with not this at particular... that time. That okay. was me being an athlete. And I, th- the story is that I had once been at a party where these people were talking in a very, um, almost like a, uh, a, almost you had to be a member of something to talk in this group because they were talking about their marathon times and their Ironman times. And it was, you know, kind of, well, my time is this, what's your time? And how many times have you run this race? Well, I've run it 10 times and I've done it eight times. And I was just kind of sitting away from all these people thinking I could do that stuff. (laughs) You know, I'm sitting there going, you know, I, I know what kind of athlete I am. And, and I, you know, so, and then, you know, it all came together later that, I said, I ran that first marathon, and then I found out about the 50-state marathon club. 
And that's when it all came full, full circle that I decided that's what I'll do to raise money for in my mom's name mm. is I'll go ahead and run 50 marathons in 50 states. And I raised $62,000 for cancer research running 50 marathons in 50 states. So really, when I started running, it was 100% to raise money for cancer research. It didn't have anything to do with what race it was, what my time was, who I met on the, on the, you know, during that time. It really was just using running to yeah. raise money. And then slowly, I became a runner. And things and things progressed. So there's the big audacious goal that you had for your mom. Well, I'm going to do something big for you. You ran that race and realized, hey, I can do this more out of mental fortitude than than the training piece. But it became clear to you that man, this is this is a way that I can put my passion, skills, and my love for mom and to honor her memory. To and work. and still be an athlete, yeah. go out and have to go through a lot of tough things and have to pound pavement or run trails and you know and deal with all the gear I mean it was I was in the athletic realm which I enjoyed but I was also making a difference yeah and so that's big for me even today if it if all these things I'm doing these days are just to build my name up or for belt buckles or for you know um you know trophies and things like that then I wouldn't be doing this stuff at all mm. you know I need a bigger cause that's just who I am personally yeah, yeah. So what was that experience like going through those 50 states? And, and as you're running, uh, I know you talk about the mental piece of this running, but how much was your mom, just the thought of your mom in your brain and, and with you in your spirit as you're sort of running these, these races, bud? All the time. You know, she passed away. It's been 21 years. And that's still a huge part of my day-to-day -day and, and why I run. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, that's a, that's a big part of all this. You know, I, I, I like to make my mom proud. I like to think that she's up there in heaven looking down on me, yeah. you know, and, and, and saying, you know, wow, I can't believe, you know, what, you know, because when I, like I said, when she died, I was not in a good place. I mean, I was a party boy. I was selfish. I was getting into trouble. I was drinking, you know, I was getting in trouble with police. I mean, I was going down wrong roads. Don't get me wrong. Right. I mean, I was not in a good place when she passed away. So when she, when I was telling her this, hey, mom, I'm going to do this for you. She was looking at me going, we'll see. Oh. You, you know, I, I don't know that you'll be able to get to that point. You know, I had a father that was a wild man too. You know, and so she's like, so I'm leaving you to him. And I know that he's just going to let you do whatever the hell you want. Mm. And so she was worried about me when she passed away. And so it took me a long time to mature enough to where I kind of got out of that. The world is about me and it's what I want to do. I, 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 I. It took me a long time to kind of transcend that and realize that, you know, it's a big world out there and it's not about Pete Ripmaster. But, you know, it, it took a long time for me to realize that. So let's go back then, because the period of time that was the year 2000 when your mom passed away, but you didn't run your first marathon until a few years. 2008. 2008. Yeah. So let's go back and kind of fill in that gap between 2000 and 2008, because that is a, an enormous part of your story as well. So I'm going to let you introduce it, I know, but it let our listeners just kind of, what was your next step? Yeah, so after losing mom... Um, in, in November of 2000, 
uh, I realized that, you know, and I had grown up very, very much interested in the northern realm, in the, in the Arctic realm. I had read many, you know, stories about, you know, people that had done big expeditions to the Arctic and Antarctic and, and uh, Shackleton and, you know, and all these Iditarod stories. And so I was, well, you know, Jack London, mm-hmm. you know, those were all huge, huge, huge inspirations to me when I was little. So when I lost my mom... I was kind of a guy, I was a pleaser. I like to try and fit in with people by trying to act like that mm. group. You know, and I and I never could quite be accepted in groups because I think they saw through that I was just trying too hard. I just felt that, you know. And after losing my mom, I kind of got to this point where I go, you know what, man? You are going to figure out who you are. You're going to go back to, in, in, in a lot of ways, I decided that I was going to go back to like being a kid. Like what made, you know, kids, you, you see them doing the things they love and they see, so they seem so free doing it, you yeah, know, yeah. because they're just in the moment and they're happy and they're doing the things that they love. And here I was kind of trying to make people happy and fit into certain, you know, uh, pictures of what people thought I should do with my life and, and that. And after losing my mom, I was just back to square one and I just promised myself, I'm going to find out again who I am. And I'm going to get back to the kind of square one about, you know, Pete Ripmaster and what makes me tick. I knew for a fact the only way I could do that was to move to Alaska. So I got in my truck, I think it was December of that year, 2000. Or my dad was in the driving, you know, he was in the, the driveway. I packed up my truck with all kinds of blankets and gear and maps and books and all, you know, all kinds of uh, stoves to cook while I went up there and drove my own way up to Alaska in the middle of the winter by myself. Uh, and, and, and kind of lied about, uh, my, I, I got a job dog mushing, um, because, I was a hiker and I had a husky. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, Fit man, I'm a musher. You know, I have a I have a husky dog and I'm a huge hiker. So, you know, I say, yeah, I'm a musher. So I got a job running sled dogs up in Alaska. Oh wow. And moved up there and just worked my butt off and just got and and I lived in a single room, you know, place a, a, a Tyvek shack with a single wood burning stove. I had plenty of books. I'd work my butt off all day long with the dogs, come home, make myself a meal, read some books, fall asleep, wake up and do it all over again. So wow. it was a very good, hardworking time when I was just kind of getting back to just what makes me tick. Wow. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So this was an opportunity for you to sort of reset your life. 100%. That was yeah. the intention at the time for me was... I don't feel, and, and I guess I should say, you know, around that time, my dad had offered me a job. My dad was a big business guy. And so he offered me a job one time on a birthday. He handed me an envelope. And within that envelope, there was a key in the envelope. And I said, what's this key? And he says, it's the key to my office. He says, I want you to take over my business. I want you to start working for me this year. You'll make $250,000 your first year. Wow. And then I'll, I'll teach you how to take over and you'll be making what you want to. Wow. And it took me about five seconds to realize that, no, no, dad, I don't, I don't want to follow your path. I am, I am want to make my own path in this life. Thank you for asking me, but that's the last thing in the world I want to do. And what does that prove? That money was not what I was chasing. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I'm proud of that fact. And I have been that way my whole life. 
So, you know, there's people that'd be like, why would you not take that? You make a quarter million dollars when you're 24 years old. And well, cause I didn't care about a quarter million dollars mm. period end of story. So, you know, then move up to Alaska, work with the dogs, you know, and <laughs> right. for free pretty much. Right. Right. And so how long did you spend your time in Alaska? How long a couple were you years? There? Okay. A couple of years. I went through some winters up there and, and, uh, really learned a lot about taking care of myself in the cold, which will obviously come back later yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, I learned how to take care of myself for my Diderot champions. You know, I, I, I was around really, really, really successful. I did rod mushers wow. and I learned from them and, you know, I took notes and I was humble and I kept my mouth shut and just worked and learned from these people. So, mm. um, that was a big part of, you know, kind of all these things kind of happening at different times in my life. And ultimately at certain point, I'm going to have to put them all together. Yeah. And that two years, how did you grow? Did you even realize that you were growing at the time? Or was it when you look back in the rearview mirror and you knew that you grew through that time? What kind of life things were going on with you during those couple of years? I was, bec I was again, I was again thinking and realizing that I don't really want to follow other people's paths. I like people that have more of an artist's realm to them that kind of, cha you know, that kind of wake up and say, this is what I want to do today. And, and these expeditions are what I'd like to, you know, get to. And so it, I, I read a ton of books. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, I didn't even, people would be like, well, what, you know, you were 20, young 20s and, you know, weren't you, you know, trying to chase some women? And no, not at that time in my life. Like I was really at a very peaceful place where I was just um, very content with hard work and learning, you know, and, and just learning and figuring out what my place was and, and where I wanted to go. And so that was a very spiritual time for me. Um, I would say that um, I, I, I realized then that um, I, ha I had an inkling that my path was not going to be like my counterpart's path. And I had to kind of own up to that. You know, I was going to have to own that, you know, because I couldn't dabble in both realms. I had to be authentic to, to the truth that was in, in me, Yeah. you know? And so th those were times when I realized like, you know, as far as people in groups and things like that, like Pete, there's, you know, you're going to take a hundred people, 50 of them are going to love you and they're going to build you up. 50 are not going to understand you and, and they're going to question you and they're going to, you know, be mean to you. And really I, I realized then I don't really care about those hundred people. Mm. I'm not trying to make people happy or make people mad or anything. I'm trying to be Pete Rittmaster. And I think that was kind of the genesis of that it was like, Oh wow, this was powerful. Like, I think this will lead to a lot of really big adventure, which I wanted. I wanted old school adventure. I wanted to go into expeditions. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to be around like-minded people. I didn't want to be around sheep. I didn't want to be around people that, you know, um, cared too much about um, how they were, you know, how they were looked at, I guess. I would say that was like 2000 until 2002 or three-ish. Okay. And again, this is 20, it, 20, almost 20 years ago now, so it's hard to know exactly pinpoint yeah. story and when things happened. But more or less what happened was I ended up working for an Iditarod champion, and he had about 250 dogs in his backyard. I took care of about 100 dogs a day, and now that's feeding cleaning up after them, mushing them, 
you know, it was, um, it was a really, uh, and, and then I realized, wow, this Iditarod stuff is, is probably beyond me. Um, I can barely, you know, I can take care of myself, but that's about it. <laughs> Let alone 16 dogs right. that all have feet that need to be taken care of. And some are in heat and some are mean. And, oh, you know, it's just a lot of moving parts. And for a guy like me, who's pretty simple and pretty authentic to um, knowing what I need to do, it was two main moving parts. And I saw the writing on the wall. So I left. I, I, I quit. In fact, me and me and the guy I worked for got in a, a, a toe-to-toe fight, you know, and we both had 44s on us. Oh gosh. On our on our chest, and we were in each other's face. And I said, "I'm out. I'm done. I quit." And I hitchhiked, you know, a couple hundred miles back to the little cabin, picked all my stuff up, and moved back to the lower 48, thinking, "I did or I dream is dead." Uh, you know, um, but at least I learned a lot about myself up here, and now I'm going to go back down to the what they call outside or the lower lower 48, right? And and kind of uh, pick up the pieces and, and and try and make a life for myself. And you found yourself in Telluride, Colorado, was which that right? is a, kind of a spiritual home to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad took me out there when I was a little boy for the first time in the early 80s, and I was around cowboys and and western mentality, and that was always a big part of me. So. Telluride is always kind of what I go back to when I need to, you mm-hmm. know, um, and when we own a ranch there, so it's always there for me to kind of go back and have some peace and quiet. Nice. And so Telluride was always kind of the place I would go and do this and try this and fail and then come back to Telluride. So, wow. yeah. Now, Pete, uh, I know this only because you've shared this with me, but, and it's also, if you go to your, your website and we'll talk more about that down the road, but, um, you went through a series of, maybe not a series, but but a period or season of depression, and so where does that fit into this story? When did you start to realize that, hey, this is uh, something's not quite right here, and I'm trying to medicate this, and I'm trying to self take care of this, and I know that's a huge part of who you are, and even overcoming that the whole mental health piece. Mm. But um, how does that tie into where we are in your story right now? That's a big piece of the puzzle for me. Um, I've dealt with depression since I've been a little boy. I was bullied really, really, really bad in fifth grade. Mm. I didn't have a single friend in my school. And they were throwing stuff at me, you know, calling me names. I, w- I would want to take my life wow. in fifth grade. I would come home almost every day crying, telling my dad and mom that I hated school and that I hated my friends and that I hated life. I didn't trust anybody. Um, and that was that was a big thing for me. That's when I started reading those books, too. Okay. Because that was what gave me the escapism. Oh, gotcha. Right? Now, all of a sudden, I'm reading about Jack London and this adventure up in the Yukon. Well, I'm not dealing with these guys calling me names. And, you know, it's a, and it was an escape route for me. Okay. So depression has been with me since I've been a little boy. Okay. Um, and, uh, yes, I've had a lot of, uh, uh and you know, I, more or less what my life is or young adult life is, is trying to find what can help with that. Mm. Right. Like there were times when I would try anti-depression pills, you know, I would have, you know, um, people, you say, Hey, you should be on this. You, you know, you're going through some tough stuff. I, and I, I would take that and then I would realize that it made me feel gray. It, it took away the ups, it took away the lows. And there I was kind of in some middle gray area and I hated it. 
right? Like I don't mind the ups and downs of life. That to me is represents a true life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's ups and downs. And so I didn't want to just take away those. Um, and so running ultimately ended up being my antidepressant. You know, I look back on it now and I, and people say, well, how, how can you run so far and how can you run so long? Well, because I need to, mm. that's my, that's what I have found as my anti-depression is running. So when I get flustered by the way the world is, and I get flustered by the day to day stuff of life, which frustrates me, I want to live a life of authentic adventure, not insurance and taxes and, you know, picking up kids at school, you know I mean? Right. Just the, the realm that I'm in. Um, so when I go running, there's my piece. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm not caring about how fast I'm running, how many miles I'm running. It's more, it's deeper than that. Yeah. So yeah. So running, I found running to be my antidepressant. Okay. So, so the running has been your release and it is a release and, and obviously it's a huge part of, of, of your life now. I would have to imagine it just became a part of, I have to do this every day just to survive and to get by and, and to cope with some of the anxiety and the depression that I'm dealing with. It was, um, it was almost like a, you know, a, it was an arrow or, you know, something I had in my quiver, you know, it was like, okay. And, and honestly, my wife knows this too. Like if, if I go a few days without running and I start to get a little chippy, you know, things start kind of bothering me more than they should. And she was, she, and she goes, Pete, please go run, go run. you know, please yeah. go out there and run, you know, because she realizes that I, I, I bog a lot up in, inside of me. Mm. And so she's, she sees that it's a release for me. I come back after running. I'm a different person as to when I left, mm. you know, and again, that has nothing to do with, you know, how many miles I have to do or my plan or my coaches, you know, what my coach says, it's way deeper than that. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about maybe one of the first couple of times you started to do this. And when I guess the first race that you ran, that was a thing that says, I'm going to do this because I promised this to my mom. Yeah. And then did it get easier each of these races? Well, so yeah. The, um, you know, so the, I would say the first 25 to 30 marathons that I ran in the 50 state marathon project, I don't consider myself a runner. Now people would say that's stupid. You've run thirty marathons. You're a runner, and I and I, what I would tell them was, well, what that entailed for those first twenty five or thirty marathons was me being an athlete and being able to jog or run a good fifteen to eighteen miles. Usually, you know, it just just off toughness and mental toughness and just dealing with pain and just I'm willing. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you get to about mile eighteen or so, fifteen to twenty. And you just hit a wall completely. And I'm mm. talking to myself. And I would have to stop. And at that point, then I would just have to kind of walk in, right? You know, and I would I would kind of have to power hike in. Well, during those times, I would start getting passed by droves of people, right? Because usually I can keep up pretty well running. And then when I stopped, I just didn't have long-term endurance. So I would stop at mile 16. And next thing you know, I'm just getting passed by left and right. And it's passed by all kinds of people and all kinds, you know, and I'm an athlete, you know, I'm deep down inside, I'm competitive. Yeah, you're going to compete. So I would see certain people like kind of passing me at mile 21 and I'd go, no, Pete, come on, man. Like, that's ridiculous. There's no, no way that he or she should be passing you because you're an athlete. You're a good athlete. You should be doing better. So I had an epiphany moment at about, at about, the 30th marathon ish. I was in some state in the Northeast. I don't remember what it was. 
and I was getting passed le- left and right, you know, and, and at one point a lady passed me, she had a prosthetic leg and she was pushing like a child and a, and she was passing me. Wow. And I'm just going, wow. It was kind of one of these moments where I'm like, look at that, huh? And not, not like more power to her. She's probably trained and did great. But as far as an athlete like me, like here I am like a strong young man and I'm running hard and then all of a sudden I'm getting passed. And it has nothing to do with her being a woman. It has everything to do with her having one leg (laughs) (laughs) and pushing somebody, you know. And so I, I think at that moment I just go, you know what? This is ridiculous. I ought to see what I can do with this sport. You know, here I am just kind of checking boxes off because I'm raising money for cancer. Yeah. But maybe I should try and kind of see what I can do in this sport. And then it didn't take long to see, okay, now I know what it is. I train. I run fast. It went from like four and a half hour marathons to all of a sudden I was running nearly three hour marathons, qualifying for Boston Marathon, running the Boston Marathon. And so it's like, okay, you know, I knew all along that if I kind of worked at it, then I could be something. But, you know, it's, it's like it's like any other thing in life. You don't get it unless you work at it. You know, like that's why people think, oh, that runner is so talented. You know, it must be nice to be like that. Well, they're like that because they work their butt off. Yeah. And you don't see their training runs and you don't see them stretching before their run. And they, you know, and you don't see them not going out that night and drinking five beers the night before. You don't see that stuff. All you see is the person running hard and you think, oh, that must be easy. It's never easy. Mm. And so I realized that and started running. And then, and then that at, towards the end of my 50 marathons in 50 states and, and running Boston and, and, and really kind of feeling like I'm chasing the wind as far as speed goes. Like I knew I was never going to be a two-hour Olympian, right? And so speed kind of lost its luster to me. Yeah, I ran Boston and I'm like, ah, that's okay. But I didn't really love that experience either. So maybe I should look at running further oh. rather than faster. And that's when I started sniffing the ultra running realm and running the longer distances. So talk about that transition. You went from the 50 mile marathons to something more ultra running before. Was there a time in there where you started to run some of those ultras before? So the, the, the first ultra I ran was called the Rocky Mountain Double Marathon. And that was in Wyoming. And that was, I needed to do my Wyoming state, but I was also very intrigued by the ultra running realm. Okay. Well, this, this race, particular race, had it set up to where you could run a double marathon. So you could run a marathon with everybody, and then you get back to the finish line, and it's really just an aid station. And then you head back out, and you run the same route again. So it's a 52.4-mile ultra marathon. Wow. And so I ran that one and did really well. And that's when I really realized that I had the right mindset for ultra running, you know, because ultra running is not about speed. It's about endurance and perseverance. And I knew I had that in droves from what I've been through in my life. Okay. And so all of a sudden I'm like, ah, this might be the realm that I need to be involved in. Not so much like the, in the cities running fast, tons of aid stations, but like getting out in the woods and running long and, and kind of having that spiritual time to, to grow. Wow. So you decided that I have a connection to Alaska. There is this race. It's the ITI Iditarod um, Trail Invitational. Trail Invitational. Yeah. And there's a 350-mile one, and then there's a 1,000-mile one. That's right. Right? So you somewhere in there, that whole thought process, made the transition and said, I want to run after that. What was it that made you say, 
I want to go to that 350. To so, push us. you know, you know, and here I was becoming an ultra runner. So I was running, you know, races that were becoming more instead of a, uh, a marathon or a 50 K or even a double marathon. They be, I started running hundred mile races, you know, um, and, 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 and this was about 10 years ago or so, you know, started running ultra running, um, long distance, hundred mile races. And, uh, to be honest, you know, just, just kind of seeing what would stop me. You know, I felt like oh, I had wow. the mentality of like, okay, well, you know, I want to run a hundred and I want to go see how that goes and go and run a hundred. My first hundred, I ran it in 21 hours. So it was, I did really well in the race. And so there I am at the finish line. And of course, I don't care if I'm 30th place or third place or 300th place you for finished. that matter. I finished and now all of a sudden I'm saying, well, I did that. What's next? And you know, so I started sniffing the other deeper realms of the ultra running world. I started, I ran the Tahoe 200, which is a 200 mile endurance run circumnavigation of Lake Tahoe wow. ran in 86 hours wow. with probably four hours of sleep in the whole entire race and get to that finish line. And I go, okay, well there's 200 miles. And that was the first 200 mile race in the country. Wow, no In kidding. In 2014, when I ran the Tahoe 200, there was a new idea. We were guinea pigs in that realm. How many people? Uh, there are a lot of us idiots that wanted, <laughs> that wanted to do it that first year. I don't know, 50 or 60, 70 maybe, something yeah. like that. This is interesting. Most people, you would think that there's a target for a race, and I just wanted to make it to the end of that. Mm -hmm. You've crossed over now, and you're saying, I, it's not about getting to that 100, that 150. I want to go as far as my stopping point. And you were searching for that stopping point. My parents made, you know, like, you know, I have my faith, right? I feel like God has made me to be who I am. Yeah, yeah. I also have two really athletic parents and really stubborn and tough parents, right? In the, in, in the athletic realm. Like, I feel like I have genes to be a hell of an athlete. I could have been a professional fill-in-the-blank athlete. Mm. I didn't want to go that route. I knew I was sniffing something deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, I'm finding my arena. I'm going, okay, this is what I was born to do. Amen. You know, and, and so, and, and, and I don't compare myself to other people. So, yeah, I get to a finish line, and it's great, and, you know, you're, you're celebrating and, and that. I'm thinking of what's next. Amazing. I, I'm thinking of that didn't stop me. You know, and so, and, and, the, and, and the beauty of it goes, all of a sudden I'm reading an ultra running magazine one day and I read about this Iditarod Trail Invitational Race. Now, I had worked up in Alaska. I had worked for Iditarod Mushers. I had been on the Iditarod Trail. I had been well-versed in the history of the Iditarod since I've been a little boy. I mean, I was always interested in the mushers, the dogs, Balto story, all the, all of it. Now, all of a sudden, I had given up on the Iditarod dream because I was with the dogs and it was too much for me. And I thought, this is it. I'm done with this Iditarod stuff. And it was almost like a dream deferred. Like, mm. I just thought, okay, it, my dream that I had since I've been a little boy is not going to happen anymore. And so next thing I know, I'm opening up a magazine and I'm seeing this Iditarod Trail Invitational. And I'm reading more about it and I'm reading that it's a human-powered event on the Iditarod trail where you haul a sled behind you with all your own gear. Unbelievable. And you either do it on foot or bike or ski. And obviously being an ultra runner, it was on foot for me. So all of a sudden it was like, it was like God handing me my dream back oh, wow. that I had since I've been in fifth grade. 
thinking it's done and gone. Now all of a sudden, here's a way to get up to the Iditarod, get on the Iditarod Trail. And ultimately, my goal was to get to Nome. My goal was to go all the way to Nome, a thousand miles. Wow. And so now I find out about this race where you have to run the 350 mile run one year. And then you try, and then you can more or less qualify for the following year to attempt the thousand. I see. And so, of course, I wrote a impassioned plea to the race director saying, I need to come run this race. This, ra- this race was made for me. Hmm. You literally made this race because there was a guy out, out there in the world like me that needed it. And, um, and he, he listened and ac- accepted the fact that I was destined for this race. Nice. I didn't have the resume. You know, like the fact that I had run 50 marathons in 50 states at that point, I thought was a ticket for anything I wanted to do in in life. And when I told him that that was my experience, he laughed at me. He says, you think the fact that you go run these little marathons where they have eight aid stations and you, you know, you're around thousands of other people and, you know, half hour after you finish the marathon, you're in a a nice shower and, you know, you're eating meals. You think because you've done that now, all of a sudden you, you feel like you can come to Alaska and run the Iditarod. You're an idiot, (laughs) but there's something about you. I can tell you're old school. You know what you, you know what's what. I can tell that you want this. Come on up. Wow. Give this thing a try. Okay. Was that same year or that you, was 2014. Okay. So wow. So so you did it the first time, and you completed barely. <laughs> <laughs> I was green. I mean, you know, and he was right. Just the fact that I had all this experience didn't translate to success on the Iditarod Trail. I got my butt handed to me. My first year on the Iditarod Trail. I can only imagine. 350 miles seemed like 3,500 miles. Um, uh, I'll tell you very quickly, I made three mistakes within 24 hours of my first race on the Iditarod Trail. You know, the sled that we haul behind us, the guy that won that year, his sled was around 18 pounds. Mine was 92 pounds. Oh, my God. So I I brought 92. They say you bring all your insecurities with you your first year on the Iditarod Trail. I had 92 pounds of insecurities with me on the trail that year. That, I got lost 25 miles the first day. So I was out in the middle of nowhere, didn't know where I was, didn't know how to get back to the start, didn't know how to use my GPS that I had with me. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I and. And then the second day, I blistered my feet toe to heel, both of my feet, by by being stupid. And so um, within 24 hours, I had made three gigantic mistakes that any one of those would usually make someone quit and go back home. Yeah, you made three. Um, I'm stubborn as a mule and uh, somehow finished that year in last place. And I'm proud to say that. You know, um, most people say, oh, Pete, you're an Iditarod champion and this. And I enjoy speaking of my first year as much as I enjoy speaking about my last year. And what you learned. Because it was a humbling experience, but I learned a lot. And again, it was another time when I'm like, okay, I did that, but I can do better. Wow. So you did. So I did. And you came back? Came back the following year. And, and um, you, you know, that first year I was, there were 12 runners that were trying to go the 350 mile, or probably more because there was a lot that didn't finish. Okay. But there were 12 finishers that year. And I was 12th. So out of 12 finishers in the 350 miles, my first year I was 12th place. And I was very proud of that. Heck yeah. Then I came back to Black Mountain, to the, to the area, to North Carolina, trained my butt off. I didn't need anyone to tell me what I needed to learn. I knew it. 
Mm. Right. I read books. I took classes. I got in shape. You know, I figured out what was what I went back up in 2015 and I got third place. So, I, you know, awesome. in one year, you know, it went from, you know, pretty much not knowing what I was doing to competing with the big boys, yeah. you know, in, in the race. And that's when I realized I'm in the right place. That was another time when I realized I don't hold anyone up on a pedestal. I'm like, there are people that I, that I have respect for, but I don't have any heroes in this life. And so I was battling with people that, you know, I had a lot of respect for. Wow. Yeah. So the 350, so you you had to run the first 350 to make it to the thousand. Well, after I wasn't gonna, the first year with, with what a, you know, what a mess I was out there finishing that race did not give me the confidence to go next year. I'm going to try the thousand. So I was, I was, I was authentic to myself and said, I'm going to go back again and do the 350 and see if I can't put things together and learn. Now, if I do it this year and do well, then ultimately I think next year I'll try to go to Nome, which I did, you know, so in 2016 would be my first attempt at the thousand mile race to Nome. Okay. And, uh, and that's, that's the year I had a real bad accident on the trail. Um, that's the year I fell through a river, a frozen river, and fell below the ice into open water. Oh my god! Over my head, um, barely crawled out with my life. What did you self rescue or were there self rescue? Because you're on the middle. There of the was wilderness. no one within miles of me oh when I gosh, went through the man. ice, and so and and then when I crawled, you know, I would crawl out of the ice and try and crawl back onto the bank of the river, but that ice would fracture and I'd be back in the middle of the river. Oh my god. My sled was underwater pulling me down. The water was trying to pull me sideways and under a glacier. And so I'm just trying to stay alive and I have visions of my wife and kids. Oh. I'm I'm literally feeling like this is how this I'm is gonna it. die. Um and and luckily somehow I was able to crawl out with my life um, and, and uh, I self-rescued and ran number of miles to the next checkpoint, uh, frozen and wet and shaking and crying and screaming and yelling and, and all those things. And then I get to the next checkpoint and they take me in and help me to dry me off and to, you know, I was shaking profusely and, and all those things. And I ended up, because I'm stubborn, I ended up getting back on the trail and went 300 more miles after the accident. Unbelievable. I got 500 miles into the race, saw the Yukon River, and said, I'm out. Mm. I just mentally was so frazzled by all that I had been through, and I wanted to go home to my wife and kids. So I flew home, and I quit the Iditarod that first year, and it crushed me because I'm not a quitter, as you can probably tell. I can tell. In talking to me. So it, it, it really kind of threw me for a loop, the fact that, you know, there was that goal and there was kind of, I was in the middle of it. I was in the arena and I quit. Pete, did, was that an immediate regret for quitting um, and feeling the way that you were feeling about yourself? Or was there a sense of, okay, I, I'm, I'm relieved that I'm alive. I'm relieved that I'm at home. And then you start to think back on that experience and go, wait a minute, I need that. I need to run back after that. Would any of that exist? So the, my thoughts at that point were, I really had found something that was punching back. That's for one. Like I said, all like along, that, I was looking line. for something that was, you know, an adventure and something I, I didn't know whether I could finish. Well, here it was. Oh. Okay. So that, that was intriguing to me. That was exciting. 
Um, and then on top of that, um, you know, there's only been a dozen or so people that have done this in the world. And so you're sitting there thinking, do I have what it takes? You start to kind of, you know, there I was 500 miles. But the thing that I, the, the thing that kind of kept me going and towards the following year was that I knew it was mentally I checked out. Physically, I was fine. I knew what I was doing out there. I was in my a good place. I could have kept going. I could have made it. This okay. Again, pause. Yeah, you're superhuman here. No, yeah. you're. I know you're. You're a humble guy, but so mentally you feel like you have, but physically, or most people would have given up on that first fall in the river, thinking that they're going to die. Yeah, you finish another hundred or plus miles. Three hundred. Three hundred miles. Yeah, and you are shivering near death. Yeah, and and yet here you are, and physically, you know. I was, uh, well, you know, the, and, and again, this is part of the humility of, of who I am, but you talk to a lot of people that live up in Alaska and have been out in the wilderness. They've all had a situation like that. Just in everyday life. In everyday life, you know, and I mean that Alaska is a scary place, you know, it's, it's a wild place, the animals, the avalanches, the things that can happen. I, I was okay with that. You know, I was, I was, I was in a good place with that. I realized that it was pretty fluky the way I fell through the ice and, mm -hmm. and, and almost died. No one's ever died on the Iditarod trail before. And you weren't going to be the first. I wasn't, you know, I was pretty damn close <laughs> to being the first person, but I wasn't. Yeah. Right. And so, but you know, and, and then you kind of, you, you have that strong mindset. That's like, you got through that. You're okay. Mm. You can, you know, you have what it takes to, to get through it. But next thing you know, I'm flying back to Carolina. Mm. And now when I get home and I see my girls and I see my wife and I'm, I know I made the right decision. Mm. So there wasn't a lot of back and forth with me. I was a big boy and realized that I made a big time, big boy decision and I would owned up to it right away. Okay. You know, um, I started questioning whether I had it in me to do this though. That's for sure. Like, um, my wife was a big part of going, having me go back the next year. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's great. What a huge support system. She believed in you. She believed in me and knew that this was something that I was going to have to get through in my life. You know, uh, yeah. I, I think that she realized it before I did. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's a God given gift. Right yeah, absolutely. There, to have yes. Your significant other see something in you that you don't see in yourself. Absolutely. You know there was I mean? a lot of that going on for many years in wow. our relationship. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you decide now, Hey, I'm going to train for this thing. I'm, I'm going to take this thing serious. Not that yeah. you didn't before, but right? Well, no, this but is it's, a new it, level. again, there's you know certain years you go up there and you just think, oh, I'll figure. I know what I'm doing now, so I don't need to be in the best shape. And it's only hiking, so what what would running shape do for me? And you know, you start using these kind of built-in excuses and things. And so um, I went back up in 2017. This would be my second attempt at the thousand mile run. Um, and uh, and you know, and so <laughs> and that year had some certain things present itself to us. Um, we dealt with minus 65 degree Fahrenheit on the trail that year. Jeez. And you're talking about hiking 50 miles into that weather. I had friends get frostbitten fingers and toes and noses. Um, there out of probably 25 athletes on foot that year, four of us made it to the 350 mile mark. Gosh. And none of, none of those four were going to move on and go to Nome. So I got to the 350 mile mark after really going through Alaskan weather and feeling that I did pretty well with it. You know, I was like, I had my systems down, but yet I got to the 350 mile mark, realized that no one was going on. And then I had this moment where I had this 
funny thing happened. I realized that, okay, here we go. This is an ego thing. Here's what I saw at that 350 mile mark. Either I can go on alone and be the only one in the whole Iditarod race that goes on in this weather, gets all the way to Nome and talk about a story, right? As any, you know, adventure would, that would be like the dream scenario. Like this race is so hard and, 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 and it chewed everybody up, but there was one guy that decided to keep going and he, and I saw it, but I felt it was dripping with ego. Mm. I literally felt like I w- if I were to go on and do it, it would only be because I wanted people to think of me in a certain light. So it was an ego-driven thing. And for me to realize that, nope, it's, I'm, I'm, I quit. I flew home again. But that one crushed me because the year before, I, I kind of was f- frazzled. This year, I wasn't. And I was in my systems. I was going through everything the right way. I was comfortable in that weather. I was moving through that weather. I could have, and the, the sad thing is, is a number of people biked the route all the way to Nome that year. And after the 350 mile mark, the weather broke and they had incredible weather. So I was back home in North Carolina following the bikers that were just on this joy cruise, not joy cruise, yeah. but well, just knocking it out all the way to Nome and they got to Nome. Wow. So there's me realizing I should have been in Nome. And, and, and then here I am in Carolina going, I don't know if I can go do this again. Like this is just so hard. It takes so much away from my family. It takes so much away from me throughout a year, getting gearing up for it, figuring out, uh, getting in shape for it, training for it, planning for it, buying the tickets, taking a month off of, of, of what my life. And, and so I really started second guessing whether I had what it took when I quit two years in a row. And ultimately it was just, I, you know, I, and in fact, that year I came back to my wife and I said, I don't think I have what it takes. And she goes, Pete, if you don't go back next year, you're going to be a miserable adult. Mm. You know, you're going to be a grumpy old man for the rest of your life because you're going to think back to the fact that you could have done this, but you didn't take advantage of opportunity given. So it was almost her pumping me up enough to go, yeah, you know what? I think I got to finish this. So I went back up in 2018 and I'm telling you, I went back up with like a, you know, I told you I was an athlete growing up. I went back up with like, I had two strikes on me now. Yeah. Like I was up there. I was going to put it all out there. I was going to put everything my soul had in me to finish. But if I didn't finish this year, I was done with the race. And I put that pressure on me. And I loved that. I love that pressure. Stuffed it and used it. I love being up at the plate with two strikes on me. Mm. You know, and I'm going to be swinging, you know. And if I strike out, so be it. Yeah. You know, at least you're swinging. You know, so I went back up in 2018 and things worked out. Yeah, that's, and you won it all. I won it all. No, that's amazing. Well, luckily, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I just, everything came together in a way that I would have never dreamt of when I was in fifth grade reading about, you know, and there I was, you know, finally getting into Nome, Alaska. Talk you about know. that experience. Talk uh, about what it felt like as you got to that finish line and, I mean, I can only imagine it had to have been just a rush of emotions. To be honest, I was a shell of myself at that point. If I would have cried, there wouldn't have been tears coming out of my eyes. Oh, wow. I was that. And people ask, well, give us an example of how, how beat up you were. When I started that race, I was 210 pounds. 
26 and a half days later, I was 169 pounds. Oh my gosh. So I lost 40 plus pounds on the trail just by hiking 38 miles a day, every day, not eating, being at a deficit. Um, and so I was a shell I, and I was sick. I got Jardia, the, the waterborne yeah, illness, like four days before I finished the race. So oh I was gosh. sick as a dog the last number of days on the Iditarod trail. And then when I, when I actually got, you know, I had to come home and I had to get IVs. I had to get numerous days, a couple days where I had to get multiple IVs, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then again, the next day do the same thing just to, because I was, I was, I was sick. My wife was worried about me even when I got home. So here's all these people wanting to interview me and people wanting to have my time and my attention. And here I was like shaking and and not, not being, but about 20 yards from the toilet for numerous days after I got home. And then, but yet, you know, you get, you're on the airplane like that. You know, I was a wreck, man. I mean, I, I, I gave everything I had in me to that race and finished and won and so there'll they'll be people that go, are you going back? And I go, why would I go back? <laughs> why would I go back to that? You know, like no one likes to see Michael Jordan in the Washington Wizards jersey. That's period. right. That's right. I did it. I did it. I finished. That was a childhood dream. Like I, in fifth grade, when I was like 10 or 10 years old, 10, 11 years old, I made a dream of leading my sled dogs up to, uh, up to, uh, gnome and cross and seeing the burled arch of gnome wow. that was my dream my childhood dream now all of a sudden i'm on foot which was even better for me and i turn the corner and i see that burled arch of gnome and my life just comes full circle and i just think thank you god for giving me an arena yeah and and thank you that people had thought of this race many years before I was involved with it, you know, for giving me the foundation to, to chase dreams. And I needed the wilderness. Mm. I didn't need this to be a cleaned up sponsored race. I mean, the, the thing that attracted me to this race was that it was a throwback adventure, Mm. you know, and, and, and I got it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so four years later, as you kind of still think back on that whole experience and uh, being able to achieve this this lifelong dream what what lessons it's a big question yes, i know yes but what lessons did you learn what are some of the big takeaways how has it affected your life into who pete ripmaster is today that's a great question i would say that i've always had my christian and i won't say i've always had my christian faith but my christian faith since i've been an adult and i found my christian faith is a big part of my life okay mm-hmm. But there are also other things that I felt were like, for instance, mindfulness. Okay. To me, mindfulness is such a big thing. And let me explain this. Let me explain this a little touch further. When I was on the Iditarod Trail that last year, I was almost 800 miles in. And I had worked with a psychologist most, most of my adult life here in Asheville because I've been through a lot of tough stuff in my life. And I've lost both my parents. And I've dealt with depression. And I need someone to be an advocate for me and to listen to me and let me explain my, myself. Mm. Well, I had that in Asheville. And he's a dear friend of mine. In fact, I have lunch with him tomorrow. Nice. Um, but he would always ask me when I would be in his office and we'd be talking, he would always ask me, Pete, you are a professional at beating yourself up over things that you've done in the past or situations you wish you could change, 
or and, and you're you are a professional at doing that you are literally you beat yourself up more than almost anyone i've seen and if you're not doing that then you're thinking, well, then I want to get here. And you have all this stuff that you want to get to later in life. Oh, once I do that, then I will have arrived. Then I will show people who Pete Ritmaster is. And he would always ask me for all these years of therapy, what are you missing from that equation? And I literally would not be able to answer the question because I didn't know what he was, he was trying to get out of me. But I didn't know because th literally that's where th that's where I was camped in life was either in depression about things that were happened 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, or anxiety about things that would further come to me down the line. So I was living my life in depression or anxiety wow. or both Wow! without ever realizing that there was a bigger realm out there. Yeah. So now all of a sudden I'm 800 miles into the Iditarod Trail. And I'm thinking of my friend and my psychologist, and I'm thinking of the questions he's asked me about, you know, what are you missing? And next thing you know, it was like an epiphany moment happened on the trail. And I thought, right now, mm. right now is what I've been missing my entire life. And all this stuff came and started coming back full circle to me that, Right now is all there is in life. It's all we have. That's it. Yeah. And literally life happens in the now, right? And if you are there, then it's there. It's freeing because you don't think of the past and you don't think of the future. You're literally just in the moment. And I hadn't spent any time there. I had spent 41 years of my life without even knowing that it existed. Wow. And that's sad to me, but there's people that never know that that exists. So I'm not too sad because I learned that. And now the rest of my life is, is, is very in tune with the mindfulness bit. Hmm. So now I talk about my faith and I talk about mindfulness and I talk about, and it's funny because people would always ask me, Pete, what was your favorite Bible verse? And I would tell them, well, it was Matthew six thirty four. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That was always my favorite verse, even even before I knew about mindfulness. But it didn't come to full fruition until no. this moment, actually, in Alaska. In Alaska, on your wow. eight hundred miles into the race, and I'm telling you, and I am not lying to you. There were thoughts in my head that I should just get off the trail right there. There were thoughts in my head that this is what I've been doing all this for. This was the lesson I've been out here searching for. Wow. This was why I did 2,500 miles on the Iditarod Trail over five years, was to learn this lesson. It had nothing to do with winning the Iditarod. It had nothing to do about my place and time and how I fit into that equation. I was, this was therapy for me. Mm. That is how I look at the Iditarod. It was big therapy for me, enough to get me to a point where, to be honest with you, I started loving myself. Mm. For the first time in my life, Pete, you are who you are. You're yeah. not perfect. Quit trying to impress people. Quit, you know, it was almost another one of those moments like I had in a, you know, before moving to Alaska. Get back to who you are. Wow. You know, and so it was this big thing. But yet I have to say. There I was 800 miles into the race, and I'm going, I'm not stepping away. I'm going to finish this thing off. Yeah. So I went and finished and won, and, and so that's cool. But really the coolest thing about it is the fact that I was able to find mindfulness out there. That is huge. Yeah. So 
that's powerful in and of itself. And if you never lo- or learned another lesson, that would be amazing. Any, any other lessons as you kind of look back? Because you've had what, almost four years now to kind of look back. And um, I know you don't want to live in the past because yeah. that's not what you're doing. Right. You're, you're about the moment and, and not trying to look too far into the future as well. Um, but in that mindfulness, are there other lessons that sort of came out of there that just have helped shape you and things that you just try to get across? Because you've been able to take this message now from not just being a winner of the Iditarod, mm-hmm. the ITI, but you've been able to kind of take this to a broad level. This has kind of given you a platform in some ways, right? To be able to kind of speak into. Well, you know, if I, you know, and I'm a public speaker, right? So I get paid to come and speak to companies, right? Or, do you know, these days it's virtual, but, you know, you know, I get paid to, no, no, you know, if I come to it in front of a group and all I'm doing is bringing, you know, I did a rod stories and showing you about me winning well, yeah, you know, that's a cool thing, right? You know, I would like to go hear somebody talk about that, but they walk out of that door and it doesn't change them. They walk out of that door and they're going, hey, that's cool. What a what a badass. That's cool. And then they go on and they move on with their life and it hardly is a second thought. Yeah. But if I can go and talk to a group of people and I can use the Iditarod to get my foot in the door, right? People love that story and they want to hear about that story. Great. And I'll tell it. But I'm also going to tell you about mindfulness. And I'm also going to tell you about the fact that, you know, you got to have big goals in life. And you got, and, and if you're making big goals, then you should be failing. Mm. You know, and I'm telling this to business groups of people, and it's, and it's resonating with them, right? Now, all of a sudden, when I'm done and when I get done with my talk and I say, now, what's your Iditarod? And all of a sudden, they're going home that night and they're thinking, what am I giving all this energy to? You know, like... Pete, Pete just gave everything he had inside of him to this goal and he showed it and shared it with us and openly spoken about it. What is mine? Am I just going through the motions? What is my goal? So if I can go in and bring these things up and let people think themselves and then make changes, then I'm making a difference in the, in the community, in the world, and who knows where that goes. Yeah. Right. And that's exciting to me. But if I'm just coming and going, I've done 50 marathons in 50 states and here's my trophy belt buckle and here's all the my summit photos. Me, 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 me. Then what am I doing for people? I don't want to go do that. I've, I know what I've done. I don't need people to pat me on the back. I didn't do it for that stuff. Mm. But if I can bring them some some ways that they can go deeper into who they are and what their goals are, and are they really given what they can to their goals? If I can get people to walk away and question themselves, my ultimately what I want people to do after listening to me is go home and look in the damn mirror. Not talk to your family, look in the mirror and just talk to yourself, mm. you know, have that talk, you know? So, mm. yeah, I mean, I love it. All this stuff is, has given me some ammo when I go and talk to groups and I, and I have fun with it. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Well, and it resonates with them too. So, yes. you know, I think that goes back to two things that really have kind of, um, even just impacted me as we've been here. Sure. Number one, you delivered on that promise to mom. Yes. You did. You yes. delivered on that promise. The second thing is that it is truly not about you. And that comes across not just here in our little talk today, Pete, but the very first time that I met you, right? So the very first time I met you was at the WNC Outdoor Collective. Right. And and, and for all I knew, you were just hired help that exactly. came in there to work a shop. I, I love that. It was not about you. Right. Right. So it was there was a couple of you came up to me a couple of times after that. Yeah. And then it came out of yes. kind of who you were. Right. That was our first so the the humility piece, 
the life lessons, the thing that you've kind of learned along the way and being able to really, truly deliver on that promise to mom is, 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 is huge. And, and it's, uh, and I also have to say, man, that's a badass name. Pete Ripmaster. I mean, what, what? gosh, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, people are like, "Man, when when did you make that name up?" I'm like, "Man, that's, just, that that's was your my stage given name. name." Yeah, that's what they think it's my stage name or something. You know, I'm right. like, "No, Pete Ripmaster." There, you know, I'm a Ripmaster. I'm, there's pride there. Um, it was Rip Meester, and it was a it, it was a it was a Dutch name. Okay, it was Rip Meester, which meant shipbuilder. Okay. So. And then we got, which is even cooler, talk yeah. about adventure. Yeah. And then we came to America and it got turned to Rip Master. And so there's a handful of Rip Masters around the, the country, of which I'm just one of them. You know, I have great pride in that last name. But it's funny, every time I bring up my, you know, someone goes, what's your name? Pete Ripmaster. And they say, oh, you should be a surfer. Or, <laughs> you, sh-, you know, if I'm in California, they say that. If I'm yeah. in, you know, Colorado, I should be a professional Skier. snowboarder. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, it, it's funny. It, it gets a lot of uh, attention. Yeah. Well, that's funny, man. Yeah. yeah. And it does. Cause that's the first time I looked it up. I'm like, is this real? I know I get that all every yeah. day. Yeah. You know, in fact, I, I should just say I'm Johnson, like <laughs> Pete Johnson or something, you know, that's right. Know. It's great. No, Ripmaster fits it, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Cause I've yeah. never met any, I've never met a Ripmaster yeah. and a brother. I've never met anybody quite like you. Too, <laughs> that's so. great. I'll take that. Yeah. 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 That. Yeah. It's, it's good stuff. Well, um, I would love for people to know how they can continue to follow your journey because you sure. are still a cause related yes. runner, journeyman, adventurer. Yeah. Um, I don't want to put labels on you. You yeah. hate labels and I don't want to put those right. on you, but I would love for people to know how they can follow you and your story and your journey. Yeah. I'll say right now I'm, you know, you know me, like I get done with the Iditarod and it's not like I'm going to pick up knitting, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still out and about. And so my, my next project is, something that I called Owl Run Hundreds. Okay. And it's uh, it's a project where I'm be- trying to become the first person to run a 100-mile race in all 50 states. Wow. And so I'm 14 states into that right now. I'll be heading down to Key West next week to run State 15, um, the, the Keys 100 down there. Um, so, um, you know, people can follow that project, um, me trying to do that. Um, PeteRipmaster.com is my website. Um, I'm on social media. Um, you just look up my name and, and all that, and it should come. Social media is kind of interesting to me. Sometimes I love it. Sometimes I hate it. So there's been numerous times where, you know, I've had a good following, and then, that, you know, I wake up one morning, and I go, I'm done with this. This isn't doing anything for me. I'm sick of putting pictures out there, having to come up with things I need to say. And so I just, like, take it away and then have to build up from zero and do all this stuff. So social media is hit and miss with me, but my website people can get in touch with me. And then I I will say that, um, and and I'm sure you can imagine, I'm in a place now where I feel somewhat of a mentor in the ultra running world. I feel like I've been through a lot. I've seen a lot. I've been through a lot of things and I can kind of help others that, that have an interest in learning and, and kind of being involved in it. So I have people reach out all the time. So I, I'm pretty much an open book as far as that goes. People have questions about gear and races and, and, and all that, and, you know, reach out to me in any one of those places and I'd be happy to, to, to help. Awesome. Yeah. And they can also stop by the WNC Outdoor Collection yes, to see absolutely. you every now and then, right? Yes. Lincoln has a, a great shop out there. I had to be a part of it. Um, I'm there <laughs> kind of hit and miss. Um, you know, obviously my life is, 
is out there, you know, so I'm traveling and, and doing things. But when I am here in town that I'm over at that shop quite often, you know, and you can, you know, you'll see me dusting and sweeping and mopping and, and you'll just look at a guy, like you said, you'll look at a guy that looks like hired help and, you know, and, and I like it that way. Yeah. You know, I like it that way, you know, yeah. so yeah, it kind of seems to fit you. Yeah. Uh, so, um, personal wise, you, we've talked about your wife and you have two wonderful kids, two, yes. two girls, yes. right? Two yes. girls. So those, uh, they are the sort of the, the love of your life, all three ladies. Yes. Uh, fantastic. So your home structure is, is there. It's in place. Rock You're, solid. Yeah. Rock solid. I have a firm foundation. I have a, a very close family. You know, I mean, losing my, my parents has made me, my brother and my sister very close. Mm. So there's a very deep connection there. A lot of love, a lot of respect there. So, um, you know, there's a good family structure. And like I told you before off air, I have my faith, I have my family, and I have my three friends. And other than that, I'm not trying to impress anybody or, or win anybody over. I'm here to speak of my life. And that's why I came today to, to talk with you is just an opportunity to speak about my life, you know, and, 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 and again, not to, not to win people over, not to think that I like that guy or I don't like that guy. You can understand that really doesn't have any bearing on me. Yeah. You know, I'm still going to be authentic to who I feel I am. So, yeah. so this has been a fun opportunity just to, to speak of my life. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Pete, man, I can't thank you enough for making the drive over from Black Mountain. And it's been wonderful to get to know you today. I love the conversations that we've been able to have at the store and over the phone. And, and hopefully this won't be the, uh, the end of conversations with you because man, you're a very inspiring guy to be around. So the Iditarod, that's all great. That's wonderful. But just who you are as a person, man, is, is uh, salt of the earth. So I appreciate who you are, Thank you. the messages that you're, you're getting across to people and, you're the real deal, man. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. You know, it's been a, it's been an awesome. I'm I'm so glad we met. Me too. I'm so glad that somehow you found Lincoln in that shop. Yeah. And there's the connection. You Absolutely. know, it's just it, it's funny how things happen. You know, like yeah. that. And I think Lincoln knows that that's the kind of shop where things like that should be happening. You know, cross promotion and meeting people and yeah. adventure partners and and all that and and friends. So, yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Pete is the real deal, not just because of his outrageous accomplishments and what he's overcome in his life, but also because his journey, struggles, and the lessons he's learned in life are relatable and universal. Humility is the beginning of wisdom, and it helps us see ourselves for exactly who we are what we're good at, and to be keenly aware of our shortcomings and blind spots. Pete is the embodiment of humility, as well as courage, self-awareness, mindfulness, and achievement. Pete refuses to be defined by his accomplishments, and in our conversations leading up to this episode, he asked me numerous times to not make this simply about winning the Iditarod or technical aspects of ultra running. Pete doesn't want his identity to be wrapped up in those things. He's a devoted husband and dad, a lover of life, and someone who wants to see others be all that they were designed to be. Pete enjoys talking with groups and discussing topics like overcoming challenge, athletic adventure, mindfulness, mental health, bullying, and depression, and even more. So check out PeteRipmaster.com for more information. And if your group is interested in having Pete come talk to them, he is a fantastic public speaker. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and photos. And as always, until we meet again, 
I encourage you to wander far, but explore local.